0: Africa rise and shine. Africa source. Africa amuka na unai.
1: Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa rise and shine. This is channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 1257230 kHz on the 41-meter band to southern Africa and on 1525 on the 19 meter band to far west africa i'm lulu gabu in studio with ann musa Tabiso luhoko and msibudi makura in our top stories on africa rise and shine at the Sawa, kenyan fighter jets continue to bomb rebel sites in somalia New project launched to cut food waste and donor nations pledged to give $11 billion in aid to Syrians. In economics, Zimbabwe Central Bank to tighten exchange controls. And in sports news, Mali to face the DRC in the finals of the 2016 Chan Tournament. But first up, the news with Anne Moussa.
2: A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Moussa. The United Nations says it will repatriate soldiers from the Republic of Congo and the Democratic Republic of Congo after fresh allegations of sexual abuse by its peacekeepers in the Central African Republic. The latest claims surfaced merely a week after several countries serving as protecting forces in the Central African Republic from Europe and Africa were implicated in separate claims of sexual abuse against minors in the country. Sharon Bryce Peace reports from the UN headquarters in
3: New York. The latest allegations were brought to the UN's attention by Human Rights Watch that was in the central CAR region of Bambari to document cases of sexual abuse by militias operating in the area. The seven new claims include a case of gang rape against a contingent of the UN that will now be sent home. Troop-contributing countries are responsible for investigating cases further and for prosecuting them. The UN has set up a trust fund to assist victims expressing outrage and shame at the revelations. There are now 77 confirmed cases of sexual abuse allegations against UN personnel across the 16 UN missions around the world, one third of those in the Central African Republic.
2: Tunisia has lifted a nationwide nighttime curfew imposed last month after the worst social unrest witnessed in the country since its 2011 revolution. The curfew was imposed after protests that started in the central town of Kasserine when unemployed man was electrocuted during a January 16 demonstration. Over the lack of economic prospects in the region, Tunisia in November imposed another nighttime curfew in the capital Tunis in suburbs after a deadly bus bombing claimed by the Islamic State Jihadist group. It was lifted in December. An out-of-court settlement seems unlikely for South Africa's President Jacob Zuma's Nkhandla affair with the opposition DA confirming they intent going ahead with Tuesday's constitutional court hearing into the powers of the public protector. The court has given parties until close of business this Friday to try and reach an agreement after Zuma offered to pay back some of the money for upgrades to his private home. The DA's James Self says Tuesday's case is about more than just paying back the money.
4: We take note of the fact that all parties have to agree if a settlement is to be reached. We believe that our case is strong in law and that while it is important that the money gets paid back, it is equally important that important issues of the exact definition of the powers of the public protector is clarified in the Constitutional Court.
2: The Mandela Royal House has slammed a decision by the Anti-Racism Action Forum to lay murder charges against former South African President F.W. de Klerk as opportunistic. The forum has laid 22 charges against de Klerk and former Law and Order Minister Adrian Flock for what it calls a mass murder of black people. Mandela Royal House Chief Mandela Mandela says South Africans should unite against rear-guard revolutionaries. He says the constitution protects the entire nation, especially minorities. Mandela says recent incidents of racism provide sufficient motivation to stand together and avoid polarization. And finally, a record ten billion US dollars for humanitarian relief in Syria has been pledged by the international community at a UN funding conference in London. More than half is earmarked to meet immediate needs this year in a country where nearly five Years of civil war has killed over two hundred and fifty thousand people. That's the news headlines at eight thirty Central African time.
0: Africa rise and shine. Africa zola. Africa amaka na unai.
1: Thank you, and it's exactly 8.05 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on this Friday, February the 1st, the 36th day of 2016, with 330 days left in the year. Our top story, Kenyan military aircraft are carrying out strikes targeting Al-Shabaab hideouts in Somalia's southern Gedo region, where El Ade Town, the site of last month's attack on Kenyan soldiers, is located. So far, little is known about the whereabouts of an unknown number of Kenyan soldiers believed to have been captured by the militants. James Shimangula reports.
0: Dozens of Kenya Air Force aircraft are flying in all directions. In Somalia, the southern Gedo region, dropping bombs in areas believed to be hideouts for the honor of African nations al shabab militants. The militants are responsible for January the 15th surprise attack at El Ade town on a military camp housing a yet to be disclosed number of Kenyan soldiers. Since then, the government has not officially disclosed the precise number of soldiers that were killed, wounded and taken captive by the militants. As the bombardment of Al-Shabaab hideouts continues, the Kenyan government has not released the figures of the militants killed. The airstrikes underway in Somalia were ordered by Kenyan president Uru Kenyatta, who is also the commander-in-chief of the country's defense forces. Kenyatta is optimistic that the militants that killed the Kenyan soldiers will be caught and arraigned in court.
5: Every single one of those cowards... Who murdered them will be hunted down and brought to justice for our soldiers
0: blood will not be shed in vain Kenya's chief of defense forces general Samson muathefe gave this amplification on remarks made by president kenyatta regarding the hunt for the al-shabab militants that killed kenyan soldiers at el ade will smoke them out of their caves and we will follow them to the end in honor of every drop of blood of our fellow kenyans adding her voice on general muathefe's sentiments on al-shabab kenya's minister for defense rachel Mamo underscored the president kenyatta and the chief of defense forces messages to al Shabaab.
6: We have responded. We have engaged the perpetrators decisively.
0: The hot pursuit on Al-Shabaab was also brought to light to soldiers at El Ade when they were addressed by Ugandan Major General Nakibus Lakara, Deputy Commander of AMISOM troops in Somalia.
5: This gives you a feel of what is on the ground, but it was also really to commiserate with our Kenyan uh, comrade. This is the time to ensure that. That support is consolidated, that we are invigorated, we are emboldened to pursue this enemy to wherever he goes.
0: Yet another swift assurance that indeed the days of survival for Al Shabaab are almost ending. Here is Somalia's President Hassan Sheikh Mohammed.
5: We will fight and defeat Al Shabaab in the deserts and in the towns, on digital and on social media. We will fight them. On the airwaves and in the newspapers, we challenge
7: them in schools, colleges, universities, and we will overcome them.
0: Somalia's president Hassan Sheikh Mohamud, reporting for Channel Africa. this is James shemanula
1: Africa has received $130 million from Rockefeller Foundation, aimed at tackling the 20 million tons of food wasted every year, especially post-harvest. This was announced in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, on the sidelines of the U.S.-Africa Business Summit that has just concluded. Koleta Wanjohi reports. According to Food and Agriculture Organization Studies, In the week after harvest, the countries
8: in sub-Saharan Africa lose 20 million metric tons of food each year, valued at $4 billion. The majority of losses occur before the food can even leave the farm gate, depending on seasonal weather, pests and diseases, and also poor harvesting, drying and storage practices. This attracts the danger of food contamination, which is a major challenge for small farmers and traders of commodities in Africa. At the 2014 African Union Summit in Malabo, Equatorial Guinea, African leaders committed to end hunger in Africa by 2025 by doubling agricultural productivity levels and cutting into half post-harvest losses by 2025. However, as Mamadou Beteye, the managing director of Rockefeller Foundation Africa, explains, 470 million smallholder farmers are still affected as they forego 15% of their revenue because of post-harvest losses. He says that Rockefeller Foundation is putting food waste management as priority and will invest $130 million in sub-Saharan Africa to help avert this challenge. This will be under an initiative called YieldWise Initiative.
5: Because the initiative takes a value chain approach uh, by doing uh, four things. First of all, getting the post-harvest loss reducing technology in the hands of uh, farmers linking them with uh, financing mechanisms uh, so that they can have access to different innovative financial mechanisms that will allow them to finance that technology but also other productive uh, needs. It is training them to use those technologies but also to use good agro, ag- agronomic practice that will allow them to improve their yields
8: the irony however is that while all this food is wasted in the continent the continent remains food insecure and the situation is getting worse currently with drought being experienced in some parts of africa like zimbabwe south africa malawi and ethiopia thomas younger the regional director of world food program west african regional office says that if this initiative called yieldwise initiative by rockefeller foundation succeeds Africa will be able to feed itself during hard times. WFP,
5: on an annual basis, with 4 million metric tons of food, feed 80 to 100 million people in the world. In other words, if we could save just half or even one third of the food which is uh, lost uh, uh, by small farmers it will be enough to feed all the people affected by uh, this uh,
0: drought crashes.
8: Mango farmers in Kenya, tomato and cassava farmers in Nigeria, and maize farmers in Tanzania will be used as pilot projects of the YieldWise initiative. Rockefeller Foundation Africa, however, insists that the $130 million under the YieldWise initiative is just but a short-term fund that is expected to just show... African countries through the projects in Kenya, Tanzania and Nigeria how food wastage can be managed and hopefully government and private sector players in individual African countries will later adopt the efforts and apply them to their individual countries. Koleta Anjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa.
1: Donor nations pledged on Thursday to give $11 billion in aid to Syrians by 2020 as world leaders try to tackle the world's worst humanitarian crisis while Turkey reported a new exodus of tens of thousands fleeing airstrikes. With Syria's five-year-old civil war raging and another attempt at peace negotiations called off in Geneva, after just a few days, a donor conference in London sought to address the needs of some six million people displaced within Syria and more than four million refugees in other countries.
9: The situation in Syria and the surrounding regions has become the world's largest humanitarian crisis, and the UN and its agencies more than $7.7 billion in aid to help. Organisers say leaders and representatives from around 70 countries attending the conference in London must rise to the challenge. David Cameron, the UK Prime Minister, hosted the conference. We are facing a critical shortfall in life-saving aid that is fatally holding back our humanitarian efforts. And after years of conflict, we are witnessing a desperate movement of humanity as hundreds of thousands of Syrians fear they have no alternative than to put their lives in the hands of evil people smugglers in search of a future. The conference was also co-hosted by Kuwait, Norway and the UN and Germany, the European country receiving the highest number of refugees fleeing Syria and the surrounding region. But it isn't just about generating huge sums of aid. David Cameron says as well as raising money, this conference is about building stability, creating jobs and providing education for those caught up in the conflict. The UK continues to be one of the biggest donors to the Syrian crisis. Analysts, including Michael Stevens from RUSI, says Britain plays an important role. We obviously have quite uh, well-developed relationships with some opposition groups. Uh, We do uh, have a connection to uh, the Syrian Kurds. We do talk to them quite a lot. Um, There are various parliamentarians that go to Damascus to talk to uh, those more uh, aligned to Bashar al-Assad. So uh, the United Kingdom is involved quite a lot in the humanitarian space. We're involved a lot in the diplomatic space. And, of course, we provide some security because we have uh, aircraft in the sky in Syria. So we do have a say. Last year, only 60% of the UN aid target for Syria was achieved. Those in urgent need hope countries who've pledged here will follow through and deliver the money. Whitehead SABC News, London. Africa, rise and shine.
0: Africa, Africa, wake up. Africa, Africa, reveille toi. Africa, Africa, wema. Sun, rise it. Le soleil
9: est levé. Weya wema.
5: What's in the happen Africa? Africa, Dumelang,
6: Sanbonani. Africa,
9: Africa,
5: Africa, What's in the happen Africa?
6: It doesn't matter where you come from. Lesotho, Kenya, Zambia, Ghana, Nigeria, Nigeria Tanzania, Congo, Liberia, Togo, Ethiopia, DRC, South Africa, Swaziland, Morocco, Botswana,
9: Gabon, Zimbabwe, Mauritania, Senegal,
0: Sierra Leone, Liberia
9: doesn't matter matter where where you're from, from. we We are are one one people, Channel Africa. Channel Africa,
6: the voice of the African Renaissance. This is DJ Cleo with G Exploits from Nigeria.
5: Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance.
1: It's 8.17 Central African Time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to southern Africa and on DSTV's Audio Bouquet channel 902. Amnesty International says the killing of a woman with albinism in Malawi highlights government's failure to protect the right to life and personal security of this vulnerable minority. The mutilated body of Eunice Peary, a 53-year-old woman with albinism, was found in the Kasungu National Park last month. For more on this, spoke to Simeon Mawanza, Amnesty International's Southern African Regional Specialist.
5: The latest case um, was in Kasungu of Eunice Piri, who was a 53-year-old uh, woman with albinism, around the 23rd of, um, of January, and her body was discovered on the 28th of January after, um, after being seen by a, a, a kettle header in, in the Kasungu National Park. She had been tricked into going on a trip to Zambia. She, you know, Kasungu is very close to the Zambian border, so people do live on either side Families do live on either side of the border, either on Zambia or in Malawi. And she had been told that her son had attempted to commit suicide by three men who are believed to be attackers. And one of the men is a brother to the deceased. And she went along with, um, with an eight-year-old uh, son who also has albinism. While they were in the forest, she was then attacked by the, by the, the three men and the, the eight-year-old boy managed to escape. When, they, when she did not return home, a member of the family was sent to Zambia to inquire what had happened. And the brother in Zambia, where she was supposed to be visiting, reported that she had not seen her. That's when people started searching for her. And uh, this headman, who knew about her missing, discovered the body in the forest and with uh, both her arms uh, cut off.
10: What is the state of albino killings? Uh, particularly on the southern African region?
5: Well, uh, you might recall that um, the uh, you know, attacks on people with albinism, including killing, mutilations, and sometimes um, illegal exhumation of their bones, started um, around uh, you know, 2000, you know, with most cases having been reported in Tanzania but this practice seems to have been uh, you know reported in other african countries including countries in southern africa malawi appears to have in- increased attacks on people with albinism around december 2014 and by march 2015 you know the the, the attacks had reached levels where people with albinism were so much of af- Terrified by even moving, uh, leaving their homes, or children had to be withdrawn from school for fear of these attacks. There had been cases of att- attempted abductions. They, some have been abducted and have never been seen. Some were killed. And the graves of people with with albinism were also opened as people tried to collect the bones for resale. And these attacks appear to be fueled by superstition and beliefs that, um, you know, bones or body parts of people with albinism can uh, bring riches. And, you know, in contexts where there is extreme poverty, this appears to have been drive-driven other family members to attack or to collude with, um, with outsiders to attack their family members.
10: Oftentimes we hear leaders or the authorities, different governments around the world condemning um, human rights abuses. But we see that condemning that is not coupled with concrete actions usually does not work. I mean, last year alone, just over 40 cases of albino killings and attempted killings were reported in Malawi. Does Malawi have systems in place to tackle um, albino killings? What are the authorities doing there?
5: Now, as as Amnesty International, we you know we, we welcome when authorities when they condemn any serious violations of human rights. But uh, you know, condemnation alone is mm. not enough. It has to be accompanied by concrete measures that address uh, first the root cause of the attacks. You know, tackling the superstitions and the harmful cultural practices that are giving rise to these attacks. This could be done through education, through mass awareness and also ensuring that the laws of the country capture the crimes appropriately and they give appropriate penalties. We have been concerned in Malawi that uh, often the police are not equipped uh, adequately resourced to investigate attacks which then results in uh, you know poor record of arrests. And sometimes when people are arrested, prosecutors uh, charge them on wrong charges to the extent that some people get very lenient sentences when convicted. But also there is a lot of ignorance around albinism. You would find that in, in a country like Tanzania, you know, people believe that people with albinism are not um, people, they are ghosts. And also if the states do not invest enough resources to bring perpetrators to justice. It, it breeds a culture of impunity um, you know, within the population. And also, more importantly, victims and families, particularly survivors, deserve to get psychosocial support. And in most instances, including in Malawi, this support does not exist.
10: Given the fact that this is a cultural issue, um, I'm sure it would not really matter the number of policies that would have been in place unless the mindsets of the people who completely believe in such superstitious and harmful cultural beliefs are changed. I'm sure it would make more sense to then you know, engage the different traditional healers and leaders to be able to perhaps get to the bottom of this.
5: Yes, I think that is important. Uh, you know uh, engaging traditional healers, but also engaging traditional leaders who in most rural communities do carry a lot of influence to change their attitudes, but also to mobilize people within their communities to take measures. In some communities, uh, community leaders are taking action. They are mobilizing, they are raising awareness. But often they are failed by the failure of the state to resource the police in order to carry out visible patrols is particularly in districts where gangs of people or where more cases of um, attacks are being um, are happening. For example, there's one district called Machinga. Of the 47 cases that we have been documented up to date, 13 of them are just from Machinga.
1: And that was Simeon Mwanza, Amnesty International's Regional Specialist for Southern Africa, (coughs) speaking to Komoto Mopulane. It's 8.24 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to far west Africa. Now, the United Nations Development Programme, UNDP, in South Africa has launched the latest global human development report which points to a gender imbalance in paid and unpaid work. The report examines links between work and human development and urges government to act to ensure that no one is left behind in the fast-changing world of work. For more on this report, we are now joined on the line by UNDP senior economist Austin Chulu. Good morning, Austin, and welcome, and thank you so much for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine.
11: Good morning, Gulu. Good morning.
1: Now, Austin, the report details a situation of gender inequality in the world of work. Briefly, talk to us through that.
12: Well,
7: there is uh, understandably um, a lot of imbalances across the across the very spectrum of uh, um, of, 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 of sexuality, etc. But the report comes up with some very clear uh, messages with regards to to paid and unpaid work uh, between men and women. For instance, it says that. Um, The labor force participation, although the labor force participation is 50% for women and 77% for men, uh, worldwide, 72% of working-age men are employed as compared to only 48% of women. Now, that's a huge disparity. Then if you look at the number of hours worked, while women contribute more to work than, 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 than men, the number of hours worked by women on unpaid work far exceeds that of men. Men predominantly work in paid work as opposed to to, to women. So that imbalance has to be worked upon. And and unpaid work, unfortunately, is work that is not really valued as being work because it involves um, things like cooking at home, uh, fetching water, uh, taking care of elderly or young people, and generally the whole uh, spectrum of volunteer work that, that is unpaid for is predominated by women and only 21 percent of total women's work is actually paid work
1: now austin let's reflect on the links between work and human development broadly speaking
7: well broadly speaking their uh, work and human development are quite interlinked you see human development itself uh, from, from from the united nations perspective comprises of three broad uh, dimensions if you if you may there is the dimension of a long and healthy life and we have several indicators that lead towards that dimension of a long and healthy life. we have dimensions that look at knowledge and we have dimensions that look at uh, uh, well being and income now on the on the healthy uh, on the health dimension which which involves work and, uh, I'm sorry, the, the long and healthy life dimension. A healthier workforce will obviously um, have longer and more productive working lives, and uh, we have seen indications right now that people actually live longer um, across the board. And that means the dynamics between retiring, say, at 60, uh, as opposed to having, you're still healthy and you can actually live longer, And therefore, have the potential to actually contribute more, and eventually that reverses round into more income, and again the standard of living is improved as you live longer. You have uh, the linkage that health and work are going hand in hand. For knowledge. Of course, we have education as, as an indicator, and that, that, is, that is predominantly primary education across, across the world. But we know that education and better educated and trained workers will do more diverse work, uh, especially now in the changing wor- world environment of work where digital technology, internet access, is providing opportunities for people to actually not work in a job, but rather work uh, to, to earn a living. Through ingenious ways of of using uh, maybe mod- mobile technology or, or or the internet, and that creates more opportunities and more innovative uh, uh, chances uh, than, than 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 would be the case if there was no knowledge.
1: Now, Austin. It's- With just uh, sorry to cut you off there. With looking at South Africa and uh, South Africa's ranking, we're sitting at 116th out of 188 countries. Now, what does this speak to? Um, It's
7: it's, it's basically a a global ranking. Uh, South Africa, even if it's 116th, is still in the middle-income countries. Oh, sorry, middle human development countries or medium human development. Now. One has to look not only at the ranking, but also at the value of the Human Development Index. Now, South Africa's Human Development Index has been consistent throughout uh, uh, the, 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 the tantrum that we've been measuring human development. It, it lies between 0.6 and 0.7, which is pretty high, because the highest countries are around 0.9, and South Africa is... Um, around hovering towards that, but it's not quite there yet. Now, there are factors that that have constrained the, 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 the rise in the index itself. And with a rise in index, you would end up having um, a rise in the rank. Most of the African countries are actually in the lower uh, human development ranking, uh, apart from uh, five or six uh, uh, other countries from across the globe most African countries are in the lower income, uh, sorry, lower human development uh, ranking. So for South Africa, what has brought down the, the, uh, the index, although now it's rising, is the life expectancy. And it used to be lower than it is now because of um, HIV pandemic, which affected uh, life expectancy. But now with the government's measures to improve and increase the uptake of uh, antiretrovirus, you've seen a gradual rise in the, uh, in the life expectancy, and that affects the index positively. Uh, education Austin, has been more less,
1: Austin yes. unfortunately, we have to leave it there for now. All right. Yes, thank you so much for joining us. That was Austin Chulu, Senior Economist at the UN Development Programme in South Africa, joining us on the line. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa.
2: A very good morning to you. In the headlines, Burundi's foreign minister denies reports that mass graves containing the bodies of government opponents existed in and near the capital, Bujumbura. The United Nations says it will repatriate soldiers from the Republic of Congo and the Democratic Republic of Congo after fresh allegations of sexual abuse by its peacekeepers in the Central African Republic. And Tunisia has lifted a nationwide nighttime curfew imposed last month after the worst social unrest witnessed in the country since its 2011 revolution. Those are the stories making headlines.
1: Thank you, Anne. It's 8.32 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Now, South African Constitutional Court case looking into the powers of a public protector is set to go ahead next Tuesday. President Jacob Zuma on Tuesday proposed how he might go about paying back part of the money for non-security-related features to his Ngandla home. A constitutional court responded by saying that the parties should decide the issue among themselves. But such an agreement seems unlikely, Candice Nolan reports.
13: Just before the court closed for the day, the Public Protector delivered her response in the form of a letter to the President's lawyers. Public Protector Tuli Maruncela calls the proposal a partial acceptance of the remedial action. This remedial action is contained in a report titled Secure in Comfort on the Nkandla upgrades. The President proposed that the Auditor General and Finance Minister Calculate the costs of the non-security upgrades, which are to include the chicken run, amphitheatre, cattle crawl and swimming pool. They must then determine a reasonable percentage of that amount that the President should pay. President Zuma said that if the court were to accept his proposal there would be no need for the upcoming hearing into the powers of the public protector. The Constitutional Court gave the parties until close of business today to indicate if any agreement had been reached in this regard. The EFF was amongst the first to respond. EFF leader Julius Malema held a press conference yesterday afternoon.
5: Our response to Jacob Zuma is very clear and it is simplified. We are not going to agree to any settlement which doesn't reaffirm the powers of the Public Protector and two that the remedial actions of the Public Protector are binding and three that President Zuma should agree in the settlement that by failing to implement the remedial action of the Public Protector he was in breach of the Constitution and the oath of office
13: Yesterday, the EFF delivered its own proposal to the Constitutional Court. The terms of this proposal largely mirror what Malema told the media. Constitutional law expert Professor Marinus Vickers says it's highly unlikely that President Zuma would agree to the EFF proposal.
7: If he says, yes, I didn't, I didn't follow the Constitution, I broke the Constitution, then he's up for impeachment, clearly and definitely or he stands in the danger of having a motion of confidence in Parliament, and then he's out with his cabinet. So he can't, uh, you know, reasonably, It cannot be foreseen that he would admit his, uh, his contravention of the Constitution. That would amount to a sort of political suicide.
13: In their draft order to the Constitutional Court, the EFF proposes clear deadlines for the President to pay back the money. And where the President asks that the issue of costs be reserved, the EFF insists that the President and Parliamentary Speaker be held liable for their legal costs. The Public Protector welcomes moves by the President to comply with the remedial action. But she says that if the EFF and the DA are minded to continue with Tuesday's hearing, then she would still like to have her day in court to present arguments on the ambit of the powers of our office. As far as the DA's case is concerned, the official opposition says it intends to go ahead with the case on Tuesday. The DA's James Self.
4: We also take note of the fact that all parties have to agree if a settlement is to be reached. We believe that our case is strong in law and that while it is important that the money gets paid back, it is equally important that important issues of law and of principle, including the exact definition of the powers of the public protector to order remedial action, is clarified in the Constitutional Court and for that reason our intention is to go to court next Tuesday.
13: The parties have until close of business today to notify the Constitutional Court of any agreement. I'm Candace Nolan in Johannesburg.
1: Now, the leader of South Africa's opposition economic freedom fighters, Julius Malema, has rejected President Jacob Zuma's proposal that the Auditor General and the Finance Minister determine how much he owes for non-security upgrades to his private home in Nganza ahead of next week's constitutional court hearing. Malema questioned why the ruling African National Congress failed to remove Zuma from his office following the Nganza saga and the sacking of the Finance Minister Nene. Malema vowed that South Africa will not be another failed African state under his watch. For more on this, we earlier spoke to political analyst Dr. Somadota Figeni.
11: Without any doubt, you could see in the lekotla or the meeting of the ANC that the tripartite alliance members were expressing their disquiet and their discomfort over the Gupta's role for what they say is the capture of some of the political leaders. So for that reason, it's clear that not only from EFF, but from within ANC itself, there is a lot of discomfort over the role of the Guptas.
1: Now, would you say that uh, President Zuma is uh, skating on thin ice at this point?
11: Without any doubt, he is at his most vulnerable period now, since he took over if you consider the fact that he was forced to retrieve the appointment of the finance minister where he seemed not to have consulted ANC leadership or his cabinet colleagues. And he has also been criticized for his relationship with the Guptas for some of the policy decisions as well as uh, the fail to provide decisive leadership at the time of this economic crisis.
1: The ANC, for the longest time, has protected President Zuma on this scandal and many other scandals. Did the party have any other choice?
11: It has. The party has a choice to choose whether to protect the dignity of the ANC and the values or to protect the individual leader. And in this case, they had chosen to protect the leader. And the consequences of that is that now when the leader has fallen out of favor or is making more mistakes, there seemed to be, uh, you know, a very awkward situation for the ANC leadership, which had tried to protect him even at a time when it was quite obvious that he was compromising the party itself through some of his dealings and the relationships.
1: Now let's 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 speak of uh, the EFF and Malema. Another promise to disrupt the president's speech during the State of the Nation address, which is next week Thursday, if I'm not mistaken. Does the president have a reason to be concerned, especially with the fact that they're calling for other reasons why Ntlanhlane was fired as finance minister?
11: I think he has to be concerned because it looks like what he thought would actually remove the steam of his State of the Nation address has simply emboldened those who are his critiques, and as such they see him vulnerable, and they are raising the whole host of issues which have accumulated over time. And for that reason, he knows that the debate itself after his State of the Nation will be dominated by the questioning of his judgment and his leadership.
1: Now, with regards to the paying back, the proposal by President Zuma to pay back some of the money that was spent on his Ngandla home, how critical is it that uh, the Constitutional Court case is supposed to take place next week, Tuesday? Now, President Zuma comes forward with a proposal that... Opposition political parties have been calling for, and the public protector has been calling for him to make an arrangement or pay back some of the money. For instance, we've seen in Parliament, for instance, with EFF members always calling out to the president, asking him when he's paying back the money. Now, the constitutional court case, supposed to take place from next week, Tuesday, the president comes out a week and a half before to say, okay. How much am I supposed to pay back? I'm willing to pay back some of that money. The timing well, of like, that?
11: I think it will be seen as a calculated move to preempt that constitutional court judgment. Again, move that seemed to have backfired because the opposition now are going for broke, trying to make sure that he admits that he was wrong on the public protector issue, something he has always tried to indicate that he was on the right and that is a very awkward position not only for him but some of the ministers like the minister of police who had to deploy so much of his resources in order to come up with a verdict which says the president was not liable in any form and therefore was not supposed to pay. So this in itself is a reputational risk for others and it's a political risk for the president.
1: Now, Dr. Figeni, final question. Are we likely to see the ANC recoiling President Jacob Zuma?
11: If ANC doesn't do well in the local government elections, if more of these misjudgments happen, and if President Zuma backs a candidate for the ANC president next year, and that candidate ends up losing, it's unlikely that he will finish his term.
1: And that was uh, Dr. Da Figeni, South African political analyst. Struggle icon Andrew Mlangeni says he, even though the South African government has made progress since 1994, there's still a lot that needs to be done to meet the requirements of the people. Mlangeni was speaking at the launch of his documentary, The Untold Legacy of Andrew Mlangeni, a, at Lily's Leaf in Ravonia, north of Johannesburg. He also expressed concerns over the recent racial spats on social media that caused an uproar across the country. Horesan Sitoli reports.
6: The documentary looks back over Andrew Mlangeni's life and what drove him to give up everything in the fight for freedom. The story is told by Mlangeni and some of his comrades in the struggle. He says there's a need for government to meet the requirements of the people.
5: No other government in South Africa has done as much as the AAC government has done. But we have not achieved everything. vision. We have not met all the requirements of our people. Let us work together with the government for the good of South Africa, not for the good of AAC. We need to meet the requirements of our people. let put our people first before ourselves.
6: He joined the ANC Youth League in 1951 and was among the first group of people to be sent for military training in China in 1961. He returned in 1963. Four months after his return, he was arrested where he spent 26 years of his life in jail. He says, at that time, he learned that education is one big tool that can be used to help bring about change.
5: It took me long
6: to learn that lesson,
5: that education, Is a weapon that we must use to defeat apartheid system. It took me long. I've already been saying I I did not
6: know of any country today where the leaders are illiterate. He was the 11th accused in the infamous Rivonia trial, where he escaped the death penalty to do time on Robin Island. His former lawyer and friend George Bezos was among those who attended the event.
0: George Bezos was sent to prison. But he thinks a little, he says, maybe he saved our lives.
6: Some of the people in the audience included former President Halima Mutante, Ahmed Katrada, Communications Minister Faith Mutambi, Sports Minister Figile Mbalula, and the Mlangeni family, Amur San Sitole.
1: It's 8.46 and our economics update up next with Tabiso Lehogo.
3: Thanks, Balungile. Zimbabwe's central bank has unveiled a raft of measures aimed at tightening exchange controls and keeping money in the formal sector. In his 2016 monetary policy announcement Thursday, Reserve Bank Governor John Manguja said the country lost close to 2 billion US dollars in externalization of funds in 2015. Shingai Nyuk reports.
14: A series of measures to curb financial outflows. As from Friday, suspicious bank transactions will need to be reported before funds are remitted. All foreign investments using local funds will need to be okayed by the central bank. There will be a 3% cap on money leaving the country to pay invoices and fees. In addition, those holding foreign investments or bank accounts over u s dollars will need to inform the central
9: bank.
3: Meanwhile, Zimbabwe will allow foreigners to buy stakes of up to 49% in companies listed on its stock exchange. Central Bank Governor John Mankuja says all investments by Zimbabweans abroad would require central bank approval with immediate effect. He also urged the creation of an economic crimes court. The Moroccan national carrier Rail M. Maroc will start direct flights between Casablanca and Kigali next month. Morocco's ambassador in Nairobi... Abdelilah Benrayane says Rwandan and Moroccan aviation authorities are working together to finalize the necessary paperwork so the airline starts flights as planned. The entry of Royal Air Maroc Express will bring the number of commercial airlines that serve Kigali International Airport to 12, including Rwanda Air, Kenya Airlines, Qatar, Dubai, Turkish Airlines, Ethiopia Airlines and KLM, among others. Egypt expects to receive a one billion U.S. dollars World Bank loan once outstanding paperwork is finalized. The country has been negotiating billions of dollars in aid from various lenders. The first $1 billion tranche of a three-year, $3 billion loan from the World Bank to support Egypt's budget was approved by the lender in December last year and was expected to arrive soon thereafter. Standard & Poor's has a downgraded commodities trader in Glencore's credit rating, citing a slump in commodity prices and uncertainty about metals demand. S&P cut Glencore's credit ratings to a triple B, A3, from triple B, A2, with a stable outlook. Glencore came under pressure last year from investors and ratings agencies to cut its net debt of around thirty billion US dollars. The US dollar trades at fifteen eighty nine in South Africa, eleven one three in Botswana, eleven one three in Zambia, six eight British pound, eight nine euro, gold one one five four dollars, platinum nine oh six dollars an ounce, brand crude oil three four dollars, six three cents a barrel. You're listening to Channel Africa.
1: Thank you, Tabi. So our sports update up next with Msivodi Makura.
14: Thank you, Luke. Good morning sports fans and starting off with rugby news. The Springbok Sevens team will be aiming to go one step further at the inaugural HSBC Sydney Sevens tournament in Australia this weekend after coming so close in Wellington, New Zealand last Sunday. The Eleanor's Stadium is hosting the tournament after it was moved from the Gold Coast and both days of the fourth round of the HSBC World Rugby Sevens series have been sold out. The South Africans are playing in Pulby alongside Scotland, Russia and Kenya and head coach Neil Powell expects a huge battle for the two qualifying spots. Meanwhile, Powell says it is important for his charges to fire in all cylinders.
5: Yeah, no, definitely not. Um, we're going to have to fight for every single um, try out there. We're going to have to fight for um, to stop every single team from, from scoring tries against us. They can't just um, pitch up there and expect things to happen for us and uh, almost the theme for these two tournaments is nobody will just give you success. You need to go out and fight for it. So
6: hopefully the guys will be ready to, to go out and fight for another successful tournament.
14: On to football news, Mali will face DR Congo in the final of the Chan 2016 tournament after they defeated Côte d'Ivoire 1-0 in a thrilling semi-final match thanks to substitute Juves Bissoma's 89th minute goal. It was an end-to-end match and both sides had their chances to wrap up the game but a youthful Mali side prevailed in the end. The Elephants started the brighter of the two sides and in the seventh minute, a ball over the top was chased down by Guza who almost created a half chance for himself. Now the final will take place on Saturday at the Amharo Stadium in Kigali, Rwanda. Meanwhile, George Luanda Mina believes his home-based Zambian players from the 2016 African Nations Championship tournament have done enough to give their foreign-based counterparts competition for places. Zambia started 2016 on a promising note when they reached the quarterfinals of the Chan tournament that is exclusively for home-based players in Rwanda. It was for the first time that a senior Zambian team had reached the knockout phase of a CAF competition since winning the 2012 Africa Cup of tournament. Nwanda no Mina said he now has a solid base of domestic players to work with for next month's top clash against Congo-Brazzaville in the 2018 World Cup Group E qualifier, doubleheader, at home on the 23rd of March and away on the 27th of March. And finally in tennis, news, South Africa's top-ranked wheelchair tennis player, Evans Maripa has been awarded a wild card to compete at the 8th annual ABN Umbro World Tennis uh, World Wheelchair Tennis Tournament. The tournament takes place from the 9th to the 13th of February in Rotterdam, Netherlands. Maripa, who is currently the world's uh, number 16, um, will be making his debut at Rotterdam. He says it's a privilege to play against the best players in the world.
4: Well, um, it means a lot to me, uh, first of all. I mean it's not a lot of people that can get uh, wild cards like
7: uh, I just did, so I'm lucky to you know, I'm lucky that they they gave me one. So it's it's one of those uh, <clears throat> tournaments where I have to test myself and you now against the top you know, top ten in the world. It's it's one of the biggest uh Opportunity they gave me that uh, I need to also, you know, uh, see see mm-hmm. myself competing against those guys. See how
4: well I can do against those guys.
14: That's why Sports News at the hour. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance.
0: Africa rise and shine. Africa, zoola. Africa, amika na unare.
1: Recapping our top stories on Africa rise and shine at this hour: Kenyan fighter jets continue to bomb rebel sites in Somalia. New project launched to cut food waste, and donor nations pledge to give 11 billion dollars in aid to Syrians. That wraps up Africa rise and shine today. And for the week, for myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumuturama Ramagaza and Tutongobeni, technical producer Ravidina Ibrahim and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info or tweet us at Shine Africa, or send an SMS on 27796957930. Now taking us to the top of the hour for the news, on the frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31 meter band to southern Africa is Nomalungelo Tladla. With well, a song titled Immialo. <laughs>